0: We had a guy at my school who, um, at our school, the lunchroom was in the old gym because they like added um, a larger, like more modern gym. So it was this giant lunchroom, and in one of the big garbage cans in the middle, a guy lit off a bunch of Roman candles and he dropped them into the garbage can, oh and then they like went off in the school. Um, but he was 18, so he got charged as a terrorist. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's awesome. And I don't know what ended up happening to him. Oh, my God,
1: you have to find out. That is amazing. He's probably on a no-fly list.
0: The policeman isn't
1: there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along his route, deploy our men, and create
2: an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. The truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. That's hot, it's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there it's very, very, very hot. Open
1: fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which the host, well, one of the hosts, selects a topic and the other hosts pick films to go along with that topic. And then we debate them, discuss them. Bring them to the table. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Stesulis, and with me as always are... Eric Marsh. And... Ryan Saunders. Excellent. And it was my turn this week to pick the topic. Uh, as I mentioned in the last podcast, and for those of you who know us, you, you might be aware that Eric and I are faculty members at DePaul's School of Cinematic Arts, and in fact, that's also how we met Ryan, because Ryan was a is is a DePaul alum. That's sort of where we all first kind of met and fell in love uh, in school in DePaul. So I chose this week, since we just started the new school year, back to school. That is our topic this week. You know, I just, I really wanted to to get my head wrapped around it again, especially because now we're finally like back in person. You know, we've been doing, as any educator knows, or anyone who has children who are students or students in general, right? We've been doing the whole Zoom thing for too long. So now we're like, not just are we back in school, but we're back physically in school. So I thought this would be a great, great topic for us to play with this week. And boy, I'm excited about the films that you two selected. (laughs) So let's just dive right in. Ryan, what did you bring to the table for us this week?
0: Well, one of my favorite filmmakers, Abbas Kiristami from Iran, has always had a bit of a fascination with Children and youth in his films and the early portion of his career. Was often defined by making lots of either short educational films for children and also short documentaries or films for class, that sort of thing. And he has, there's a, a documentary of his I love called Homework from the 80s, which sort of led then like segued into him making Where's My Friend's House, which is about a boy trying to return homework to a fellow <laughs> student. And, but it all sort of started with his first feature documentary which is also about school children and that is the 1984 film First Graders. First Graders is designed kind of you know and we'll talk about what it reminded us of but I was often actually thinking of Frederick Wiseman which is someone who I don't typically think of when I'm watching an Abbas Kiristami film but it is presented as uh, the f- like the first day of school for a group of first graders. And it primarily focuses on the director of the school who sort of functions as a mediator and disciplinarian and someone who is keeping order of all of these, you know, I wouldn't call them unruly first graders, but maybe by the standards set in the school, they are somewhat unruly. And most of the sequences in the film outside of the group gymnastics and like morning exercises and recess are these like little disciplinary meetings and they're these little vignettes where students are brought before the director and they confess their crimes in a way and he tries to mediate it he tries to come up with solutions whether that be disciplinary action or getting them to repent for their sins and it's all sort of in the effort of keeping everyone in line and sort of you know finding their place um while also maintaining an order it's it's a very beautiful film. It has lots of the touches that make Abbas Kiristami's work so enchanting and wonderful. And, yeah, that's, that's my pick, Abbas Kiristami's First Graders from 1984. Wonderful, wonderful. Marsh,
2: what did you bring? In the spirit of the theme, I thought I would start off with a story about bullying. In the early 2000s, you know, when I was in film school... Uh, I used to post, you know, on a a punk and hardcore message board, a Chicago area one, you know, before Twitter existed. And there was a a guy on there who was this Gen X guy, Matt Borgeli. And I was always posting about movies on this message board. And I was, you know, a young man. I was a film student. I was pretty pretentious and, and obnoxious and bright eyed and bushy. Tamed. Yeah. And, and, and Borg was always on there giving me a hard time lighten up (laughs) enjoy the movies you know stop being such a fucking asshole and he had that very like 80s you know Gen X kind of like knowledge of movies in fact he once uh, ran a Ralph Macchio webpage that was featured in Time Magazine in the the mid 90s (laughs) Uh, so shout out to, to Borg but the point of all this is he he bullied me on there in a good way and I learned a lot of lessons about appreciating all different kinds of films and, you know, just sort of opening up my mind and and, and that kind of thing. And he, in fact, uh, you know, we became friends and a a couple years later, he came to my apartment and gave me duffel bags of VHS uh, that he was just getting rid of. And that completely is like the bulk of my collection is stuff that he gave me, including the film I picked for this episode, Three O'Clock High from 1987. And I was introduced to it from him, and it is very much like, yeah, a film that seems to be kind of lost in the in the, the, the ether of 80s high school movies. God knows there was so many of them. And uh, Three O'Clock High is kind of like an underrated gem from that era. And so the film, uh, which was directed by Phil Joano, is about Jerry Mitchell, a student uh, in high school who uh, is kind of a nerd, but in the way that he like works for the paper. You know, he's not a a math and science guy, but he, yeah, he's he's on the school paper and he also works at the school store uh, where he sells, you know, notebook paper to his fellow students. And the film takes place over the course of one single day as Jerry crosses paths with the new student, Buddy Revel, whose reputation precedes him as uh, a psychopath, a bully, a danger to uh, everyone at this school as he is transferred there on this day. And Jerry, uh, because his uh, friend-slash-editor at the school newspaper encourages him to seek out a story on this new student, Jerry has a little incident with Buddy in the bathroom where he touches him. And that's a big not-to-do uh, type <laughs> of thing, as, as we've been hearing. And from there, it is uh, basically uh, what I would describe as, like, a John Hughes film meets After Hours meets High Noon, where a fight, a duel is established in the first act, At 3 o'clock, Buddy and Jerry are going to fight. And the whole rest of the movie is this Kafka-esque sort of nightmare situation as Jerry tries various strategies to get out of this duel, which he is sure to lose. And that's 3 o'clock high from 1987.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I guess uh, both of these films... Are exploring the difference between good kids and bad kids, Mm -hmm. and perhaps the murky line at times that separates them.
0: And the troubles that arise when these kids touch each other or or kind of push (laughs) each other around a little too much.
1: Physical confrontations abound in both of the films. Yeah, I, I, I think we've become known for like some really, you know, blessed slash cursed double features and i think this one for me uh is right up there at the at the top <laughs> of the list uh, it's I, I
0: agree it was really funny so i i watched first graders first um and then had went into three o'clock high and this is one of the times this has happened a few times but truly this time around it was while I was watching three o'clock high first graders was just infecting my brain. And I was watching everything in three o'clock high through the <laughs> lens of the structure of first graders. And then every time there was a scene where Jerry was receiving some sort of discipline from all the different figures at his school. Um, I kept thinking about like, how would the director in first grade handle <laughs> the situation? How would he act as the intermediary between buddy Ravel and Jerry? Yeah. The way these films spoke to each other was, um, a blessed, cursed, odd pairing, without a doubt. Well, you know
1: what, though, it's interesting that you're you're bringing that point up as well. Um, I I didn't quite think of it in those terms of imagining, <laughs> you know, the the director of the school that Abbas Kirostami is is sort of, you know, filming at, exploring, being transposed into Three O'clock
0: High. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but it's really interesting because when. The, the director, I guess we're calling him from Abbas Kiristami's film, First Graders, is disciplining, I'll put that in quotation marks, uh, yeah. disciplining so many of the kids and talking to them about their, their infractions and the things that they did. So many of his interactions with the kids, so many of his sort of explorations of what they did and all this stuff, like, it was interesting to me how much, like, questions of honor arose for him you know what I mean like about Mm -hmm. the students sort of like admitting what they did and for him like if they were in his own eyes I guess sort of like honorable about what they did he often would would discipline them I guess a little less severely you know he almost would like I don't want to say reward them but You know, he seemed very proud of them when they would do that, you know, like for him, that it wasn't necessarily just about like having a hard line. Right. But it just like sort of trying to teach them to to do the right thing to be. He kept using the phrase grownups, you know, Mm -hmm. acting like grownups and three o'clock high is also exploring questions
2: of, I think, honor. Right. Absolutely. Uh, but in a very different way. Yeah. In like a yeah, like a western slash yeah, American way, where like yeah, things are solved with, the, you know, violence or ingenuity. But there are questions of honor, yeah, as people's uh, you know people are called out in this film uh, in various ways. And there's also a link, of course, between these two films on a kind of superficial level, but it's very funny, which is that uh, once Jerry's fight with Buddy becomes, like, known to the school, there's these two guys who are a documentary film crew, and they sort of just start, like, following Jerry around in a really you know, obtrusive Mm -hmm. way, and they're very, very funny. So there is even, yeah, like jokes about, you know, documentary cinema within Three O'Clock High, which itself is the farthest thing from documentary cinema. Mm -hmm. It's uh, a very stylized movie. Every single shot is, you know, a dolly or some sort of unusual angle. And that's, you know, one of the things I I love about the film is its youthful exuberance. And, yeah, I just found it to be yeah, a very uh, interesting clash, of course, between uh, between them.
1: And, you know, not to, like, sort of bury the lead too directly, um, but uh, I, you know, when I was, like, looking more into Three O'Clock High, I saw that at the time uh, that it came out, it was, it was critically kind of panned by yep. a lot of, you know, more, I think, you know, well-known uh, film critics, famously... Ebert gave it a one Ebert. Right. Yeah. And, and Ebert was basically, this is a dumb fucking movie. And, you know, he just like trashed the movie or whatever and was like, this is so stupid. It's, it's moronic and all this kind of crap. And I got very upset when I, when I read that And Ebert can do that to me, certainly to, I think a lot of us, but I was just like, man, I don't know of an instance where I feel like Ebert got it so blatantly fucking wrong like was he asleep in the movie theater for a guy that (laughs) that you know supposedly like fucking loves movies you know like ate shit and slept with movies all the time you know like man he really fucking missed the mark on this one because to me like this is a movie made by like movie lovers like yeah. the it is it is an incredibly cinematic film in the sense that for me what makes it so fun like you're saying that youthful exuberance almost like a film student in yes. the sense that like there's so many uh homages and references to other forms of of you know filmmaking and styles and approaches and even just like you know, literal kind of quotations from, from other movies that I was like, this is, this is brilliant. Like this is Mm -hmm. such a, this is such a movie lovers take on, you know, the high school teen film uh, that, I just was, like, very, I was, like, so taken aback by that.
0: I was like, Ebert, you humorless fuck. I'm like, what is
1: wrong with you? Yeah,
0: it is worth pointing out, too, that, you know, one of the other times he was so famously wrong and just foolish is in a review he did of Abbas Kiristami's film Taste of Cherry, to the point where it makes you wonder, like, how could a man who supposedly loves movies so much be so completely out of touch with one of the most beautiful films
2: ever made? Well, we've been over that, though, we've talked about the cia on this show before yeah
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah special agent ebert yeah there's oh, no yeah. doubt about that but no i completely agree i mean just to build off more of what you were saying with three o'clock high i mean john hughes wishes he had the sense of space that's present in this film. I mean, just the way that the camera's moving around this high school, and it's worth pointing out, you know, who shot
2: the film. Barry Sonnenfeld. It's,
0: it's a very flamboyant camera, but it's one that matches the tone of the film perfectly, and it does feel like you're gliding through the hallways with all of it. Um, and it kind of puts a control on all of the chaos to sort of, like, root you in it, while also kind of dragging you along on all these dolly shots. Well, and, and I,
1: you know, of course, right? Like, because... Because so much of it to me, like I mean, we can get into so many of the the styles and and you know, homages. Um, but one of the ones that that felt so pervasive to me in the film stylistically was so much of Three O'Clock High plays like a screwball comedy from the '30s almost. And with Barry Sonnenfeld, obviously, you know, in his work with like the Cohen brothers, the Cohen brothers are always sort of trying to utilize a very similar style and tone to their films. And that was, I think to me, like the, the part that I, I really uh, enjoyed the most was this sort of like, yes, it's an, it's an eighties teen film and it feels very much like an eighties teen film, but, but it also feels like a thirties screwball comedy. And also almost like a an, an expressionist comedy as well. It's very, like, expressionist, like you're saying, with all the angles and uh, the moments that sometimes can, like, drift into sort of like absurd, surreal, you know, encounters that he's having or just the way like you like Ryan, you were saying that the the space is captured.
2: And I think it's worth pointing out the sort of like the the Phil Juano story, because it's kind of instructive, I think, in, in reading this film or understanding this film is, yeah, he very much was that sort of, like, Spielbergian child who grew up in California, and by the time he had graduated high school, he'd made a dozen films on 8 millimeter. you know, just obsessed with the cinema his, his entire life. And he went to USC and made a very acclaimed short film, which got him an unprompted call from Steven Spielberg when he was like 22 years old and he picked up the phone and Spielberg was like saw your short wanna chat and he hasn't he doesn't know how that even happened mm-hmm. and he got this sort of like sort of mentorship with Spielberg where they set him up in Amblin with an office and he got him some some television work. And then he got him this film, Three O'Clock High, which is an Aaron Smelling production as well. And Spielberg was a, a silent producer on it. But he really encouraged this kid, you know, to to do it and go for it. And I think you can tell, you know, watching this movie, it's like mannerist or formalist. Yeah. It's excessive. Every shot is like... It's his last, you know, and that's like, yeah, very much a a young filmmaker kind of thing. And he was like in his early to mid 20s when he made it. And it's also got a Tangerine Dream score that gives it a lot of a lot of verve, you know, and the whole thing. You're right, is is stylized. And I think like the Coen brothers and with the Sonnenfeld connection, like this film is working in caricature and it's working in fantasy. It's not trying in any way to have like verisimilitude and I think that always is gonna like trip up audiences right because the whole thing is just like unreal and that's too god the, the screwball point I hadn't even thought about it but you think about like okay you could perhaps criticize this film for very obvious reasons it is a The teen adolescent fantasy. This kid, Jerry, who's just totally just like, I guess, average, just a normal quote unquote guy. Good kid. Good kid.
0: (laughs) Yeah, really well behaved and still seems to do
2: decently in school. Yeah, and he's got women falling at him throughout this movie. But it's like in the context of the film, it's like supposed to be funny. But if you were to take it seriously, yeah, it's like, you know. By problematic, quote-unquote, or whatever, but they just go so far beyond, you know, any, yes. k- any kind of verisimilitude that it's just, like, everything is fucking hilarious. Like, oh, yeah. re-watch- I watched it with Kyle, and we were just laughing the whole fucking time. Yes. It's a very mm-hmm. funny movie in so many ways. Not just what they say, but the shots are funny you know like it has a lot of personality in that way yeah
0: jerry is like a really contradictory hero in terms of he really doesn't make any sense no he doesn't because at the (laughs) half the time he's extremely put together and the other half of the time he's completely falling apart and a total mess i mean when we're first introduced to him at the beginning of the film he's just crawling around his bedroom (laughs) sniffing all of his clothes just to see what is like remotely even wearable and then due to laundry issues he needs to like microwave his underwear in order to like have something to wear for the day and then he's like brushing <laughs> his teeth with diet coke in the car you know yeah. on his way to school but see that's that classic 80s like I'm late for class montage right. <laughs> you know like taken to a perverse extreme you yes. know like it's like well because it, it's like Ferris Bueller he's you know he wakes up he's like well it's gonna be one of those days and then it like you're like oh it really is I mean this is like a bit grim you know as he's sniffing his his dirty pants and shirts but yeah but then he arrives at school and here he is he you know he works in the school shop he's beloved by his teachers he seems to do quite well and we later learn that he doesn't have a single thing smearing his record he's been like such a well-behaved boy throughout his academic career
1: but i do want to say that whole opening sequence that you've brought up like for me uh I, i was just really blown away by it i thought it was fucking brilliant you know it it was like you said, this, this, this eighties, you know, opening montage, got to get to class. I'm running late. I'm just a normal kid running late to school and all the stuff that goes along with it. You know, the opening theme the younger song, sister. the younger sister, you're going to be late. Oh shit. I'm running behind. Gotta get it. Mm. And he's doing all that, but it does drift into this territory right away of just being very expressionistic with like the angles that are being used in there. Oh, like you said, all very extreme angles. Uh, it's taken to the point where it's almost like a a parody of that opening montage that we've seen so many Mm -hmm. times, like in back to the future or whatever, you know, but there was even like a point where uh, to me, it, it really like entered brilliant territory where it sort of reminded me of Godard a little bit because (laughs) you have the opening like theme music that's playing this like opening like theme song and it's very upbeat but then as he's preparing to, to, you know, make his way to school, it suddenly cuts to his, I guess, sort of this girl, this, this weird goth girl that is really infatuated with him, his friend Fran, who I love. Mm-hmm. And we're going to probably talk a bunch about Fran later, but like <laughs> yeah. when it cuts to her, you know, you know, cross-cutting to where she is also preparing for school, all the music is cut out like very abruptly, very dramatically. It kind of reminded me of um, A Woman is a Woman, you know, where he's like introducing the music and then it's just like this abrupt Godardian like break uh, and immediately like the immersion is broken, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's just like her doing her thing. And then it cuts back to him and the music and then it cuts back to her and it's like fucking dead silent again. And I was like, God damn, this is fucking amazing. (laughs) I like loved it so much because it was like a weird thing to do, you know? It's like cut through the pop song and to just cut out like all the audio
2: together. And then when he's like driving to school, uh he he causes like mass chaos at an intersection. And there's like he's like doing like a three sixty like full speed with the brakes and like I, no one acts like it's exceptional or like anything happened. They just like pull into the yeah. school. Like it's, Yeah, I mean, it's like so weird. It's oh, like-
0: <laughs> it's extremely weird. There, yeah, because yeah, where he's like blur- bursting through red lights and then just like, yeah, cars nearly colliding. But then, you know, to kind of relate all this to Andy, to what you're talking about with just the visual look of the film and the way it is like riffing on that classic 80s intro of a high school film. This film has, you know, a lot of the pleasures that can be found in an 80s film with the, the film stock, like it's a very colorful film, and yet this film seems to be pushing it to an entirely other level in terms of the artificiality of it. Everything does feel very purposefully colored in a way that heightens the unreality of all of the sequences. And I think that, yeah, both in terms of like riffing on the intro with like its music and its cutting and then also its like visual look does seem to be like it's a direct send-up of the cinema that was happening at the time that the film was being made.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, cuz you can tell his influences aren't 80s high school movies. His influences are like real cinephile shit. Um, and even just like when you're introduced to the school, it is like a series of virtuoso tracking shots with extremely layered ADR of all these students talking about Buddy Ravel and all, the, all these rumors about this violent student. And it's very, you know, it's like, three versions of, like, Robert Altman's The Player opening, like, within this sequence as you then go inside the high school. And also just fun little point, I don't know if you guys caught this, Kyle called it out immediately, Yeardley Smith the voice of Lisa Simpson is one of the first students you see, and she plays a cheerleader in the film. And she has dialogue that opens and like closes the film as like a student passing by.
0: Shut up! So that was actually Lisa Simpson, Yeah. Yes. because that's the first thing Molly said too. She's like, "That girl sounds exactly like Lisa yeah, Simpson." It is. I didn't
1: catch her in the beginning, but I caught her at the ending, and I, I guess I don't know. I just was like awash in the opening sequence. I didn't notice her, but at the ending, I definitely. Was like, that's fucking Lisa Simpson right there, you know? Oh man, that's so funny. Molly's gonna <laughs> lose her mind when she hears but, that, you know. And uh, again, not to like get, oh, well, fuck, we're always getting ahead of ourselves. But the cast in this, yes, aside from like the lead Casey Shamosko, who's I think. You know, Ryan, you were sort of like making comments about him and his performance. And again, this is where like the screwball comedy thing came in for me. I was just seeing him as like, it's like Cary Grant from a screwball comedy. He's like this this handsome, very nice looking, good boy, every man, but he's frantic and he, you know, it, it takes a lot of effort to be that good, nice mm-hmm. boy, that kind That's of thing, true. you know? And he's constantly like popping his eyes like Cary Grant, doing double takes, you know? He's just aghast at this world and running here and uh, here and there, you know, to and fro. But the cast around him, this film has, like, a, a murderer's row of just, like amazing character actors that you know, you've seen in other things and they're always wonderful. And in this film, like every single one of them like gets it again. That's why for me, like the direction of this film is like so incredible because he's able to get everybody on that page. He's got great actors, but they all know what their role is and they all play it the way it's meant to be played in this film where they're not trying to play you know, some sort of, like, realistic version of a, of a principal or a dean of discipline or a security guard. They are, like, archetypes, you know? And everyone, like, gets it and nails their performance, like, so well.
2: Yeah, I mean, you've got, you know, a column out. You've got Philip Baker Hall, of course, as the detective. You've <laughs> got John Patrick Ryan as the principal, Mr. O'Rourke. You've got Mitch Pelegi, Doing Duke the security guard, which <laughs> is a him, very dude. colorful turn. You've got Jeffrey Tambor as the store like manager, uh, <laughs> who's like Jerry's immediate supervisor, who like loves the store so much. Um, and then even on top of that, I didn't know the actor, but there's like the is he like the the dean of discipline yeah. uh, is. Uh, like a literal Nazi. Yeah. Uh, and that's, again, like <laughs> how rid- like, ridiculous this film gets is like at one point, Jerry is sent to, you know, the Dean of Discipline and, and it's like, all these jokes about yeah, how this guy's like actually a Nazi, yeah, uh, and he's got all these books, and he's like got a, an Eva secretary who's like a big blonde woman, yeah. There's all these yeah. like it's like when he address yeah, he like addresses you know all the students later, and it's shot like yeah. he's got
1: like a he's got like a like a fascist statue on his desk. It's like some like mm-hmm. German boy mountaineering like up a peak.
0: You know? I mean, he like, himself looks like a fascist statue in yes. a way. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah, worth pointing out his name, Wojtek Dolinsky. Yes. And yeah, with his Nazi war crime books and uh, domineering secretary. And again, that whole sequence
1: of, you know, when he's called in to the to the dean's office uh, after he was like sort of trying to escape, you know, the clutches of Buddy Revelle, uh, He gets like hauled in there. And again, it's shot like German expressionism. Like there's like Venetian blinds,
2: and... like, you know, light on the wall.
1: Yes absolutely i mean it is really such a treat and especially for people who who are familiar with some of these references i mean i don't think you have to be familiar with the references to 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 sort of appreciate it and and you know quote get it but i mean as somebody who also watches a fuck ton of movies that's again like each scene was such a pleasure to sort of see his source material and to see it so lovingly uh, adorned on Mm -hmm. the moments the sequences in this film
0: yeah it's a very purposeful film and it like it's self-conscious with its reference but it it uses them to to fun ends i think and i think a lot of that has to do with all of the players as you've discussed being on the same page understanding the spirit of the film you know one thing i was going to ask you guys did did either of you uh did your high school have a school store yes mine did really yeah oh Okay, that was brand new to me. I had never seen a school store before, or at least one that expensive. No, I get it. I see the need for one. I we just didn't we didn't have (laughs) anything like that. I don't think we did either.
1: York did. my My high school did. It had Mm -hmm. you know that's where you'd go to buy your like school hoodies and your Letterman and your you know you need a spare gym Mm. uniform. But they did also have like candy and they had some, you know, school supplies
0: and and stuff like that. So it was very you know, familiar with me. Like, I got it. I gotcha. understood it. You yeah, know? I mean, well, his high school is probably, like, three times the size as mine, you know. His high school also on the beautiful grounds in Ogden, Utah, with, like, a huge mountain behind
2: it. Oh, my um,
1: God.
0: Yeah, the mountains.
1: You know,
2: I yeah, in the interview I watched, uh, the director said he picked it because of its gothic exterior, and, of course, it's uh. also got the mountain beyond that like the mountains that sort of surround the school but he said yeah that they they scouted lord knows a thousand schools all over the country and he was like this one and specifically you know there's shots like you know when the the uh, fight or the duel happens right it's like extreme low angle the bully you know with the gothic background Mm -hmm. again it's all very purposeful and it was all very selected and vetted you know
1: and it 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 also again made me just sort of think about that experience the high school experience and i think so much of what this film captures which is this place is it's is the world in a microcosm, like all the various people that are students, but like they're adults with jobs, you know, like this is not just a, a school. This is like a whole community that's yeah. that's taking place in here. It's the town. It's the city. It's the world. It's their world. And so everything has those those stakes because there isn't anything, especially for this story in this film, outside of the school. It's that's it and and for me that's what i also experienced you know it was like the dramas that happened in that place because it was my world it was my only world you know they took on at times those sort of like mythic proportions in the same way that you're seeing played with here like like it isn't an analogy like it is that right yeah. it, it, it's not like this thing it it is that thing the the dean of discipline isn't like a nazi as you said, he yeah. is a <laughs> Nazi. <scene, right>? Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, and I think too, like to to that end, it's like the the plotting and or like structure of this film, like everything serves that like classic Hollywood function. Everything is reinforcing what's going on to even a parodic level. Right, there is multiple times where you know, Jerry will wander into class or a pep rally, and the content of that sequence is, like, reinforcing... Uh, what's going on in the movie, right? So there's a scene he walks into class, and it's all about you know these insects being devoured. It's like the grasshopper and the uh, the crab scorpion, the crab scorpion. Yeah. It's just like look at the crab scorpion, just eat the shit out of this thing, and it's just like reminding Jerry uh, of himself. And then he goes to the pep rally oh, where yeah. the cheerleaders are like beating the shit out of a dummy, uh, you know, or a pinata, yeah. and so like yeah,
0: a pinata of like the rival. <laughs> (laughs) football team that's filled with bright red (laughs) confetti (laughs) extremely evocative and haunting like could you imagine something like so harshly backlit it's amazing (laughs) yeah oh man it looked so nuts but i i imagine i could you imagine being a high school student and seeing the other team getting like just torn apart by all the cheerleaders like god that would be thrilling you know
1: It's funny that you bring that up, because when I was in high school, I took German. That was the language that I took. And Uh my German teacher, uh, wherever she is, I I wish her the best. I adored her. (laughs) Frau Bentley was her name, Frau Bentley. She was born in Germany, uh, and she was born during World War II. And she grew up as a small child, like still, like during that time, and then also experienced like the horrors of post-war Germany, like the devastation. Her dad was a a soldier. She didn't meet him for many years because he was like a prisoner and like had to sort of work his way back. But anyway, uh, I remember, you know, we had this big, there was a big school pep rally kind of thing going on at one point. And me and my buddy were just, like, making conversation in class with her, and, and we were like, hey, Frau Bentley, you going to the pep rally or whatever? And she was like, no, no. And we were like, oh, why not? And she's like, I don't like pep rallies. I don't like rallies of any kind, sporting events, thousands of people screaming and cheering for someone else to be crushed or killed. I don't like that. It makes me very uncomfortable. It makes me think of Germany. And we were like... Whoa, you know, we were like, holy fuck, yeah. We were, like, shook the fuck by <laughs> like that, you know.
2: And there's also the uh, English, the older English teacher who's, like, uh, oh recounting, God. like, Achilles. Yeah. Saying it in, like, you know, the most...
1: It's just brutal gruesome. and graphic. Yeah. <laughs> the violence of when Achilles... Uh, slew Hector and and paraded him around the streets behind his
2: chariot. Right? So, yeah. So, like, again, like, all of this stuff serves to heighten this, like, mood and atmosphere. And the film is very much, like, I guess what I would describe as, like, a high-wire act kind of thing. And you've got Jerry being pushed and pulled and in, in every direction trying to get out of this thing. And I guess that's really kind of, like, what the movie is, is... Jerry trying to solve this problem at three o'clock, he has to fight buddy Revel, the bully. And what is he going to do? Right. And so he tries to like appeal to reason. He tries to get out of it. He tries to escape. He tries to get "quote unquote" thrown in jail mm-hmm. detention, as his sister suggests uh, mm-hmm. that she saw in Gunsmoke. Uh, you know, get locked up that way, you'll avoid the fight. You know, and so he's like trying to get like put in detention and like thrown out of school at a certain point, and then he again, it just sort of keeps escalating, right? And, and all these bribery becomes a key attempt <laughs> theft.
1: I think the, the yeah. best. I don't know if this is where you go, Marsh, but the the for me. The high, the high point of his attempts to, you know, get thrown in jail or whatever, climax in uh, his class with Miss Farmer. Farmer, where he ha- where he has to give a, a book report. In desperation, he tries to figure out his way to to sort of get in trouble, to do something so egregious that he'll be <laughs> locked up. <laughs> and again, it doesn't go the way he thinks it. <laughs> well
2: yeah right so so again this this yeah this film is like really drenched in the, these kind of ironic moments so he like lights up a cigarette and he starts recounting. Uh, what does he say? Like, "Honey in Hollywood." Honey, <laughs> honey does Hollywood. Yeah.
1: He's like, "I got a book report for you."
0: But yeah, like when he starts, he before even getting into the erotic quality of the book, he starts calling into question the idea of a book report itself, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and and what is to be gained by him, you know, speaking about a book to a group yeah. of students and how the book report only serves to encourage illiteracy because then they are not reading the book and relying relying. exclusively on his report but then no of course i'll tell you about the book and he does and he starts talking about the syntax and like the way it's all arranged and it yeah it carries this high intensity it's
1: angry
2: it's sexual yeah
0: he goes full bad boy he tries to go full bad boy to miss farmer Right.
2: Turn of the screw.
0: Yeah, and it certainly works, just not in the way that he had intended. His performance is so evocative and convincing that it starts to get the blood flowing um, in Mrs. Farmer's veins to the point where she becomes erotic at the thought of this erotic book and of Jerry's erotic, yeah. sensual, masculine performance of a book report. She gets very turned on
1: by his bad boy routine. Like, he's smoking the cigarette and, like he just like throws it into her cup of coffee and she's just like, like her lips quivering <laughs> like and the movie then like again we're talking about all the things that this movie like is and it becomes and it was like then you know we've had like high noon we've had the western we've had the screwball comedy and all of a sudden it becomes like a fucking erotic thriller like the music the tangerine dream score at that point like starts pulsating and yeah he just gets up real close to her i loved it dude like i got to tell you Kinda of made me think of you, Miss Farmer. There I was, in bed, reading my book, Honey's adventures gripping my imagination. I just knew I had to tell you about a book that was this good.
0: Hey, Mama. Jerry, I hope this is going somewhere. It's going somewhere. Yes, yeah, she slowly removes her glasses as their heads like start getting closer in the frame. He's
1: just staring at him, you know, and he's like, What's your favorite book, Miss Farmer?
0: What's the difference? It's important to me. Turn of the screw. What a coincidence. <laughs> like, like, I loved it so much Yeah, they kiss and then he passes out because he's lightheaded and clearly is not a smoker. Yeah. And then when he wakes up in the nurse's office he assumes like, Well, when am I due at detention? She's like, Well, if you feel better, you could you could head back to class right now. The teacher left her phone number here, in case she can't make it, she'd like you to call you later in the day. Yeah. And
2: she offers him cobbler, the nurse does. Yes. Which is of another very surreal moment. She just like pulls this cobbler out of nowhere. And Jerry's like, "What? No? You know? yeah,
1: because he's a <laughs> gobbler? Right. Like,
2: and then there's, of course, the the last time that Jerry tries to get out of it. and this arises in a in a very f- interesting way that I think actually kind of like deepens the film on a number of levels, which is the math test. So late in the the school day, Jerry goes into math class and it turns out, buddy, is also in this class, and he's, like, seated next to him. And there's, like, an exchange of glances where Jerry interprets that, you know, he's supposed to show his answers to Buddy. And trying to appease him, he does. And the math teacher catches them and sends them to the principal's office. And we meet Mr. O'Rourke, who's fucking hysterical. But basically, he's like, all right, well, Buddy do these math problems. And if you can do them, I'll know that, you know, Jerry cheated because Jerry in this moment is saying like, no, I was the cheater because thinking
1: he'll win buddy over.
2: Exactly. Thinking he can avoid mm-hmm. the fight by like, you know, taking the bullet for him. And then buddy goes up on the chalkboard and does the algebra, pro- algebra p- problems. That's a tongue twister. Say that
0: five times fast. And yeah, buddy does complete the problems successfully. And it is, An interesting moment because it also then calls back to an earlier moment in the film where, you know, one of the few times we see Buddy is he's sitting in the library reading a book. Of mice and men he's reading of mice Mm -hmm. and men yeah and that's you know that sequence is when jerry tries to pay another like huge beefy footballer to like start a fight with buddy and then like you know beat him up so the, the fight won't happen later in the day we only see buddy a couple times throughout the film one of them is just reading by himself quietly in the library and then later here he proves himself to be quite good at tough algebra questions.
1: Yeah. You know, again, going back to that, like, you know, uh, Ebert panning of this film, like one of the things I read in his review was like, he was like, oh, you know, the only character that's interesting in any way, shape or form is Buddy. And he's like, I think he used the phrase like um, unexplored or underdeveloped or something like that. He's just like, you know, blah, blah, blah. But again, I think it totally misses the point because like Buddy is a mystery and the fact that he remains a mystery and the fact that you have that moment, those moments where number one, he's just on his own sitting around reading Steinbeck and then is capable of, of doing a very complex mathematics problem. Like he's not stupid, but we just need those hints. We just need to see that to really like open up again, the depth to me and the mystery of his character. Like, he What does he say early on? At the very beginning when uh, Jerry is trying to tell him, like, hey, I want to do, you know, we want to do this uh, new student profile on you. Buddy looks at him, like, very intensely and says, I don't like people knowing about me, right? Like, he says that. Like, he wants mm-hmm. to be a, a mystery. Like, he's a a sensitive, probably an insecure dude or whatever. And that's it right? Like, we don't need to explore his character because his character doesn't want to be explored. And he has depth, and he has all these little things that that also come out in the performance, I
2: think. Yeah, and also those moments call into question the entire enterprise of high school, right? Because you have a student here whose reputation preceded him, right? Everyone is projecting all these, like, myths and legends. Again, like, this gunfighter, you know, oh, did you hear about Mm -hmm. McCabe? You know, you hear about Buddy killed this guy over at remedial school or whatever. The man who fought Buddy Revell. Yeah, exactly, right? And then you it turns out that, like, he just wants to be left alone. He wants to read Steinbeck. He knows how to do math. Like, again, yeah, he's wearing a leather jacket and, you know, has big boots on and kind of longish hair and a, you know, very masculine presence. There's no indication of his behavior in the film that, like, the only thing we learn is that he doesn't like to be touched. And if you touch him... Then you have to fight him.
0: And even in that,
2: there's a great deal of implied
0: darkness. Just to that very essence, right? Like, here's a bully, here's a man who's angry at the world, who wants to retreat within himself, and he doesn't want anybody to know about him. And his number one thing is he doesn't want to be touched. It's like, all right, what happened to this guy? You know, (laughs) if that's what's fucking triggering him and sending him off, like, to the point where he's like, I cannot be reasoned with, like, this is it, like, you have crossed a boundary, like, something severe happened there. And I think that that's like, there's a source of character there.
1: He really reminded me of. Uh, Frankenstein's monster of the creature. Like mm-hmm. also again, like talk about cinematic influences, like the way he moves is very much like that. He's just this big, tall, hulking, lumbering presence. But you know, like the, the, the actual character of the creature from the book, like, again, there's this, incredible depth there that depending on who has of course adapted the story like has either explored that depth or or not you know Frankenstein's creature is just this hideous monster or it's this misunderstood thing a product that's been sort of created and thrust into this cruel world that only can see him as the monster right the behemoth this thing to be feared when in actuality you know it's this 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 wounded creature that's that's desperate for connection but finds around him like only violence and tragedy
2: you know <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah, no, no I, I agree and shout out richard tyson who plays buddy revel uh just like really brilliantly it's it's one of those performances where like you could say he does nothing but you know that would be a lie right and I think, yeah, he, he's, you know, he had a he's had a pretty, pretty like solid career for a guy like that. You know, he's in like kindergarten cop, mm-hmm. uh, which is like what I most remember him from other than this, you know. But this is such a striking performance and it it, it does again. So like this high school is like fucked up. It's like, you know, on this sort of stylized you know vibe it's all called into question like why doesn't everyone just leave this guy alone i mean like even the, the, the yeah. teachers are like fear mongering at the beginning they're like oh yeah this kid like yeah he'll kill you or whatever yeah. you know they're like getting in on the the sort of cynical rumor mongering
0: and then i guess you know thinking about then the ending of the film sort of through that lens is this whole film is all of these people reacting in fear to buddy and And then when Jerry finally, you know, he thinks he's solved his problem by paying Buddy off, he gives him a bunch of money saying, no strings attached, like, here's $350. If you take this, like, can we just, like, call all of this off? And Buddy accepts this. But then says like you're a coward, right. you know. Like I didn't realize you were such a pussy. Like if you you can't face this, you know. Like I'm you know I'm disappointed in you. And Jerry takes that to heart and then decides you know he's like I want the money back. Like fine, let's do it. He also
2: stole the bunny from the the company store in a very <laughs> <Yeah>. dramatic scene, <laughs> uh, and so he is also like guilt tripping on uh, that sequence where tr- in trying to steal the money to pay off one of the jocks, he like destroys the store with a fire extinguisher (laughs) in a very (laughs) screwball comedy scene where it's just like Mm -hmm. a Jerry Lewis, like a man versus a fire extinguisher or whatever. Um, And
1: then triggers like the, the, (laughs) the next sort of like cinematic homage when it becomes like a cop film. It becomes like, you know, a heist film gone wrong and Philip Baker Hall shows up as the police detective
0: that's like, we gotta investigate this. He takes one look at Jerry and he says,
2: I just want you to know, And I have a very strong suspicion that this was an inside job. Almost always is.
0: Yeah, (laughs) and I've got a feeling this one was, too. You know, he's, like, putting himself in his way. won't let him go past. Yeah, that
1: whole sequence, too, because even, like, again, like, everybody, all the side sort of, like, character actors, the supporting cast, are just, like, so fucking pitch perfect. Like, when Jeffrey Tambor, who, you know, is, like, in charge of the store, like, comes in and sees it wrecked, and he's just like...
2: What has happened here is so... Heinous! I almost can't bear to show it to you.
1: And then there's this <laughs> b- amazing moment where he's just looking at like the the wreckage of the school store, and he just goes like, "God damn it!" <laughs> and he's like, so, <laughs> he's so upset, and it's so serious. And it, again, like conjures up for me like what I what the kind of comedy that I really love, you know, which is like so, like rinky dink stakes that are, like, taken so seriously by people, you know? Like, that to me is, like, such a great place for comedy, you know? It isn't just necessarily punchlines, but it's just, like, people reacting, or I should say, like, overreacting to things. And, like, that's something that this movie comedically just nails so well. Like, it isn't people playing necessarily things for laughs. It's, like, all these actors playing these... Scenes in these moments so dramatically, like so
0: melodramatically. You know what I mean?
2: Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: And then I guess just to quickly like finish just the thought I had in terms of you know <laughs> we'll talk about the ending in greater detail, but you know just to to get it out there, you know Jerry does win the fight with Buddy, and I kind of interpret that as he wins because he is meeting Buddy on his own terms. He's not running away in fear he's not buying into all of these rumors as everyone else is and i mean even during that fight when people try to interfere they're interfering with that preconceived idea of buddy but jerry is meeting him on the terms that buddy is setting and not going at odds with all of the things that upset him and bother him and i think that that is one of the reasons that he does you know come out the victor because it does become a fair fight in a sense because they are both on the same page but
2: it's not really a fair fight because like seven other people intervene to help (laughs) jerry uh, at various points (laughs) yeah and
0: then yeah buddy in fear of realizing he might lose does break out the knuckle duster and that's like clearly that's a foul play well it's because
2: he got the bloody nose that's actually a great moment where jerry gets this cheap shot in and it causes Buddy to bleed and it's the first time Buddy's been vulnerable or lost control in the entire film. He's clearly a control freak to a certain degree. And just this one little jab, you know, draws blood and it shakes his confidence in this like David and Goliath, you know, sort of situation.
1: The whole fight it's, it's importance. I think as well for Buddy and his confrontation with Jerry and, and his like sort of like being almost like let down when when Jerry just tries to buy him off is about like our roles and us playing our roles and playing the part, mm-hmm. you know, and like Buddy, like sort of consciously kind of accepting this monster that everyone's made him out to be. And like the fight has to happen for him because it's like I have to play the part. I have to be the thing that everyone sees me as all of his hidden depth. He does keep hidden. Like it's his sort of safety is keeping all of that hidden from people that he's actually, incredibly intelligent, probably, and, and extremely sensitive. And yes, maybe has a, has a, has a, uh, is a product of abuse at home or whatever, right? He keeps all that safe. But he's like, he's grudgingly given in to playing the role of the, the big bully, the big scary monster man. Liberty Valance. Right, you know? And it's like, hey, dude, your role in this is to fight me. Like, this is what has to happen here. And that's why for him, I think, even when the fight turns out the way that it it does, he kind of now respects, right? That's the whole thing. He now, you know, in a sense, like he's kind of like happy, I think secretly, like the way that the fight turns out, you know, where he
2: goes at the ending and gives just the slightest smirk to Jerry. That moment is honestly incredible. And especially in just like, yes, this film is extremely goofy. All that stuff. And then Buddy Ravel cracks the tiniest smile I've ever seen in a film. Mm -hmm. And that is just an unbelievable moment, right and it is and yeah, especially since his face looks like it's made of stone
0: the whole time because yes. he's so careful with the way he moves all his muscles and it really is it was like watching a rock suddenly move a little bit. it was the smallest smile you could ever see. it's this sort of like crack hour moment, you know, like crack hour would say like what
1: what is truly cinematic you know it's when a small thing is made big by cinema the arching of an eyebrow can look like a fucking avalanche do you know what i mean and like mm-hmm. that's what this film like really embraces in such a powerful way the tiniest of fucking smirks is like yeah like you're saying it's like a boulder rolling down a hill suddenly for us that to me is like truly cinematic
0: well said and it's also that attention to, you know, write like this mixture of the big and the small, you know, we have all of these major figures in the film like all the disciplinarians and then of course Jerry and Buddy but then there's so much attention played to all of the other like denizens of the school all the other like <laughs> <Yeah>. bit parts <laughs> there's like my favorite is the guy who's like sort of the bookie for the school Dude, yeah. the bookie all right. of the different bets yeah shout out to 80s films too cuz he's got a fucking cigarette tucked in his ear in fucking <laughs> yeah. high school yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like this gangly skinny guy that you know in- insists he's like don't worry Jerry I'm on your side I think you're gonna last more than three minutes, and then Jerry does and say so, like you know he makes good on that bet. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you've got you've got him, and then you've got the documentary film crew that also are like narrativizing the event in a way that could eventually lead into our discussion of first graders and the way that Stami, ever the trickster, does like narrativize his documentary. Yeah, but that's very present in in their role. Um, yeah,
1: each of them like like is this you know has this again role. You know, it's like, it reminded me again of like Preston Sturgis films, you know, like here's the town, here's uh-huh. all the people, here are their parts, you know, the bookie, the journos, the, the hot girl who's always like immediately flanked by her two, like slightly less yeah. hot girls, you know, and she's lit differently. Like she's lit differently in all of those moments. It's very subtle, but she has like this kind of like soft, like arc light on her
0: face, you know?
2: You know, she was on Dynasty, so... Give her that high key, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, there you go. That adds up. Well, you
2: know what? Uh, Kyle and I were having, were hooting and hollering with the jock who wears the flannel, and this is the jock that Jerry tries to initially hire to fight Buddy in his place. And this guy is, yeah, sort of uncharacteristically sensitive, but also he's like, look, just pay me, and I'll do it. But the whole time they're having this discussion out in the football field during, like, a fire drill, he's holding a tiny ceramic mug because he... Was in ceramics class when the fire alarm was pulled and so it's just this like big beefy blonde guy holding like a tiny blue cup the whole scene and it's fucking hilarious Mm -hmm. like again confounding these roles as well like oh yeah he's a jock but also he can make you a nice coffee mug so again (laughs) they're always like adding these little things you know it reminded me of you know one of my favorite like dumb moments in, in movies like this is in class of 1984 Uh when Timothy Van Patten just all of a sudden plays the piano beautifully. Do I get the gig, teacher? Did you learn how to play like that? do I get the fucking gig yes. but it's like this actually very touching moment in a not very touching film uh and it's awesome and it really like reminded me of that you know yeah that 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 depth that's
1: just there just enough for you to play with and then like move on from it you know yep. do what you will with it yeah
0: mm-hmm. But yeah, the film ends with all of these people that we're talking about coming together and supporting Jerry when it seems like, you know, after he's, he's won the fight, but the, the cops are still breathing down his <laughs> neck because they're certain that, that it was an inside job and that the money missing from the school store, you know, is, 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 is the result of Jerry's, you know, uh, wrongdoing. I mean, and it's, it's true that, you know, they're, they're, their gut instinct is correct. But then in an effort to kind of get Jerry out of that hole, they all decide you know they arrive at the school store the next day and they say oh hey jerry you know a sheet of paper uh, costs a dollar right here i'll take three and they all start buying various amounts of paper to collectively build up the fund and then like kind of get you know get Jerry out of the hole and it is in that moment where that smile is cracked when Buddy does return and he gives him the $350 back and mm-hmm. you know it's like there you go all the, the money has been returned but it is a nice moment where we get to see everyone one last time as they all come together to, to kind of protect Jerry yeah
1: it's like it's like John Ford it's like the town yep. the, the square dance you know everyone comes mm-hmm. back together the grand rediscovery of community in America all that and the,
2: yeah, and then once again it flips to a Sturgis film because in the store Jerry's got Fran the goth girlfriend who he also kissed throughout the movie then he's got the, the woman from Dynasty looking at him Karen and then,
1: isn't that her uh, name? Karen
2: of course yeah. the blonde the Karen uh, yeah the Karen of <laughs> yeah. the movie and then Miss Farmer appears at the window uh, ready now in all yeah. black like a femme fatale <laughs> yeah.
1: like, and then yeah. all the students like hush you know and everyone's like holy fuck she's
0: back and she yeah she kisses him that was another like shocking thing yeah, you know, the other time it was in this like fury of passion and he was getting closer with his cigarette and it was like something, you know, something crazy happened and then maybe they would regret it. But no, here at the end, you know, she she walks right into the store and she gives that high school boy. Just a plants big... one on yeah.
1: him.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. And,
1: like, Such it's... an eighties movie. There's a lot of like humor in this movie that I think you know just wouldn't fucking fly today but also no. why i love it <laughs> you know because it's sort of like you know there's some things that are really like questionable now, you know, the idea that it's kind of badass for this student to be, like, fucking his teacher, apparently. Oh, yeah.
2: (laughs) But again, I think that's part of it, too, where it's like, yes, you know, you want to read that as, like, yeah, this movie was written by, you know, a 20-year-old with some bad ideas, maybe. But it's so heightened that it's just funny. Like, Mm -hmm. I I don't know. It's smart. It's very smart. I got
1: to ask those two, two, since we've been on this subject, you know, and part of it is about... For me, like our experiences, you know, were, were either of you, did either of you ever get into fights in school or well, something like, I mean, not as obviously as big and dramatic as this, but were you having a,
0: were either of you ever in a fight in school? Not in high school. I like tackled a kid in fifth grade cause he was making fun of me like for too many days in a row. And then it was the same thing where, you know, it's like, I was the well-behaved kid and Mrs. Rasky was like, Ryan,
2: no, not you. <laughs> like, <laughs> Marsh? No, no, I I didn't really get in any fights, you know, like, except on the football field, you know, maybe a personal foul or two. But that's not a, yeah, not a proper fist fight. I got into a couple. Yeah. That might
1: surprise you guys, but I got into a couple. Well,
2: yeah, look, I was the football playing jock. You were in, you know, musical theater. What's going on?
1: (laughs) I had a lot to prove. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I had a lot to prove. Yeah. The most dramatic one I had, there's some similarities between this was was an earlier one um the biggest one i think i ever gotten to was uh yeah in fifth grade and it was a very similar kind of scenario where there was this kid and he was like he was the bad kid that everybody knew about you know and he and i got into it and i uh, he had this georgetown hoyas hat that he loved and I was sick of him kind of pushing me around. One day, so I just I ripped it off his head and I threw it in uh, the mud and then stomped on it. You know, his his prized Georgetown Hoyas hat. And then he was basically like, "We're fighting. We're gonna have to fight because of this moment." And it it built up that way. And we had you know like a recess, and then it it just kicked off and we fought. And then all the teachers, it was getting so big and so out of hand. It was turning into like a prison riot out there. Yeah. And the principal, the fucking principal finally like ran out because it was like, he lost total control of the yard, you know? And the principal came out and then this (laughs) kid, like spun and fucking decked the principal, but like punched him in the stomach super hard. And the principal was not prepared for it, didn't think anyone was gonna hit him. Yeah. And he fucking doubled over and went down and then this kid ran off. It was like, principal down. Like this that kid took it. Oh, that happens in
2: three o'clock hot. Yeah, I was gonna say. And in
1: that fight, you know, and I was like in that moment, but because he struck the principal and then it like all spun around and turned, then everybody forgot about my role. So I just like strolled away then and was like, well, I guess. <laughs> He's got bigger problems than I. Have
0: right now. Yeah, without a doubt. Well, I'll
2: tell you what: if you were at the Iranian school for boys that we saw in Kiarostami's film, not sure you would have gotten out of it so easily. <laughs> no. <you> know? <laughs> no,
0: there's no doubt. Speaking of the ways, you know, I talked about at the beginning that having watched first graders f- first and had it sort of like color my viewing of Three O'clock High. When Three O'clock High ends with the big fight, and then everyone's in the, you know, in the parking lot of the courtyard and they're all cheering for him. The first thing I thought of was one of the rituals in first graders where when they do their morning exercises and they are either trying to encourage, whether it be a new student or an accomplishment by another student or even just the maintenance man, they have this chant where they say 10 100, 1,000 times well done. And at the end of 3 o'clock high, that was what came out of my mouth for Jerry. You know, 10, 100, 1,000 times well done, Jerry. Congratulations.
1: I guess, and it's such a beautiful, like, I love that. I was like, specifically wrote that down. and was like, we got to start using that with each other now. Like, I love that affirmation. It's so great. But again, you know, I guess if we're trying to connect both the films too, for me, I would say that, you know, in different ways, both of these films are exploring what is a huge part for me of the educational experience. You could say on an institutional level, but I would also just say on like a, a, just sort of like a humanistic level, which is that it isn't just about like us learning about Achilles and Hector or, you know, complex algebraic equations, but also just about socialization, Mm -hmm. like socialization, learning our place in this world in in communities and and how we interact with people and how we share things. And that to me is, again, in in the ways that I guess how it happens, these two films certainly like depart in the ways that socialization is sort of explored, but that was what I think was, was to me, like the most beautiful aspect of um, Abbas Kirostami's film was its exploration of, of that, of socialization. And it's using like discipline as an entryway into that. But really that to me is what is so like remarkably um, uh, handled in this film is just like the idea of, of of school as a means of teaching us how to, how to care for one another also, you know? Mm -hmm.
0: And I think a large part of that comes from the director who in his disciplinary discussions with these students is offering these moments of repentance or for them to backtrack on things they've already said or, like, reveal their own truth. And he feels like a detective with these little first graders, and, you know, that's the farthest thing from most of the disciplinarians in 3 O'Clock High. The last thing they're interested in doing is truly investigating and figuring out what's going on. Or if they are, it's with preconceived notions, right? Like, you've got the, the Nazi dean who's you know he's like oh your record's clean but i know people like you like you're <laughs> you're causing a mess here i know that you're like you think you could you'd, you'd, be, you'd be good for th- four years and then you could get away with something heinous and nasty yeah, get you away know, with, with a knife. Yeah. yeah you know but that's not the case in first graders you know we get all these like little sequences and You know, most often the kids are either walking out, shaking hands or literally holding hands or giving each other a little kiss on the cheek. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, the big sort of like theme, you know, again, in in that idea of socialization is like the whole film is all about like apologies and forgiveness, right? Mm -hmm. Because it is this sort of like, yeah... We're all here a bunch of kids like inevitably someone's gonna push someone or twist their arm or steal their apple and it's like well yeah what a, you know again it's like what's what's right what's wrong what's what's punishment what is uh, all this stuff right because there's a lot of talk too you know about like knowing your place and and being in line uh, and, and in this like Kuristami way like there's so many kind of like meta, like usages of words right because the the biggest refrain of the film is the director saying speak up because the kids are speaking too quietly but also speak up right and it's about owning your actions and discussing your actions and it's it's literally about yes speaking up but there are various kinds of of speaking up because there's a one point where the director makes clear he doesn't like snitches. All right, that's not mm-hmm. what this is about, uh, and that's kind of an interesting part yeah. of the film as well. Right?
1: Yeah. Again, it's like honor, <laughs> right? You know, like there's an honorable way to go about these things, right? You know, and that's so much of what I feel like he's he's trying to instill in them. You know, it's like
2: and uh, like trust too, right? Because yeah. he like before these kids are sent out of his office, it's always like promise me, you won't do it again. And they do, and then they leave the room. But we also see, again, like a whole wide variety of students, including ones where it's like, you have broken your promises, right? So we're seeing like, in almost in that, yeah, like Weisman way, we're getting like, The full experience as like a kaleidoscope, right? You see the kids who are about to be expelled. You see a kid who has never been in trouble before. You see a new kid, you know, all this stuff, right? So it is really this like spectrum and just seeing how the director responds to these problems or attempts to... Because after all, folks, these are first graders. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like, you know, we could talk about, yeah, like. He keeps (laughs) telling him, like, you know, you're a grown up.
1: You're a grown up. Yeah.
2: He tells one of the kids at one point, he's like, look, your mom goes to work. This is your work, uh-huh. right? Like, you're here, you're working, you know? It's, yeah, it's very intense at, at times, and he's dropping, like, extreme truth bombs on these kids. Yes.
0: Totally, yeah, he's really gentle with them, but at the same time, he is sort of speaking to them in a very intense way that, I mean, maybe they're used to, right? I, like, I don't, it's, it's hard to say, like, you know, obviously what any of their home lives are like, but yeah, he is, yeah, dropping these truth bombs. He's, he's approaching, <laughs> Them like with these adult truthisms that he thinks that they'll embrace and apply to their lives. And I mean some of them clearly do. And then, but yes, of course, there are repeat offenders that he is very much keeping track of and will remind them of that fact. But yeah, it is really important to remember that these are first graders, and that much of the time when they are confronted with the things they're wrongdoing or how they're actually feeling about things they become a bit breathless their their voices get very quiet or you know they they feign sickness mm-hmm. you know he's like well clear your throat what's going on and he's like no i'm sick mm-hmm. and he's like well it seemed fine you know just a few moments ago when you you did this yes. um, and everything kind of feels very earth-shattering to so many of them i mean you know we talked about portraits of childhood the other week and we were talking about how the littlest things feel like they carry so much weight, mm-hmm. and there's one of the most beautiful sequences in this film that clearly, you know, enchanted Kirostami was the boy who lost his cup.
2: Oh, the and saga he, of the orange cup! Oh my god. Mm-hmm. He
0: he approaches the teacher, the director, in tears, and he's talking about how he's lost his cup. He can't find it. His name that was on a sticker on it has peeled off, and he knows if he goes home without that cup that his mother is going to be so angry and, you know, it it feels like the world is ending. It's an apocalyptic moment. The tears are rolling down his cheek, the snot's coming out of the nose. I mean,
2: it's
1: a a full on, you know, first grade meltdown that Mm -hmm. this kid is going
0: through. And then it's funny because the director, instead of just patting him on the back and saying like, Oh, we'll find your cup. Like, let's go look for it. He instead says we are going to approach the community. We are all going to collectively, you know, with honor, Find this cup. If we can have everyone focused on this, this problem can be accomplished. And then later in the film, this problem is accomplished. And, you know, whether this is something that was planted by (laughs) Kyrostami. It's hard to say. It seems, you know, it's like, it is too good to be true, and it's, but it is an irresistible moment, and that's when, again, during these morning exercises, the beginning of the day, he has all the students, and he brings up the boy, you know, and they say, you know, give him a, a nice well done, and he tells them the story. He says, the orange cup is missing, and he's like, I'm not accusing any of you. One of you may have accidentally picked up a second cup, And what I'm going to have all of you do while you're all in line is go through your bags and see whether you happen to have the second cup. If you do, we would like you to leave it here when we leave so that the boy can take his cup back. And, of course, it's in a beautifully composed shot. Mm -hmm. All the students stand up. The screen is completely covered with all of their bodies as they're rushing away. And what did they leave behind? the orange cup in the courtyard Mm -hmm. and we see our little lad run up you know he sprints into the frame and grabs it um and yeah it reminded me of a later moment in a in uh another kirostami film close-up where there's the like the bottle that's rolling down the driveway um and he like focuses on it he does have like an obsession with with objects often in his film and finds a lot of beauty in them and yeah that particular moment is very nice I enjoyed the way that he appeals to the community in order to solve this issue but
1: you know again I mean this is Kyrostami we're talking about here and to to go back to something we were talking about a few moments before like an incredibly cinematic filmmaker that you know you can talk about some of his films like this in close up and it's like oh it's a documentary and it's like well and he also staged some stuff so right but it's like yes because that is cinematic you know like mm-hmm. he is making films beautiful films touching films films that you know he he uh, has sort of raw naturalistic moments in and others that of course you know he uh, he gets it. <laughs> yeah, know? I do. Well, you money. know, one of
2: my one of my favorite moments in the film is one of the kids is like uh, sent. He sent out of the the director's office on like very harsh terms, and is like, your punishment is like you can't go back to class. Yes. And in this moment, as this kid leaves the director's office, and within the director's office, we should say, these are very, these are like very documentary moments, right? It feels like. Mm-hmm. And then the kid goes into the hallway. And to emphasize this, like, he can't go back to class, there's these, like, a- amazingly staged moments where he's, like, outside the door and looking in, and it's, like, cut back and forth between kids looking, like, Look at the bad boy outside the door. He's
0: been banished from the community. He's been exiled, you know?
2: Yeah, and that's... And that's a very bad thing, you know?
0: It's It's like the most beautiful moment of the film because, yeah, he does leave, and it is clearly a sequence that was staged after the fact, which I also find really incredible, that, the you know, what ends up happening is the boy, as he's about to leave and deliver this note to sort of, like, seal the fate of this fellow student that did him wrong, he can't bear the thought of him missing his lesson, so he returns to the director's office and he says... I forgive him. You know, I, I, I offer forgiveness for him. I don't want him to miss his lesson. Like, I can't bear the thought of it. And, you know, that is clearly the real moment. And that, you know, was something that struck Kyrostami so much that he knew that, and it's really nice afterwards imagining, you know, him like being like, congratulations, like, you, you know, good boys, like, you, you've done the right thing here. Like, I now, please, I need you to do it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah he said. Like, yeah. Let me set up my cameras out here. I need
2: you to gaze through this door longingly for a moment here. Mm-hmm. There's a yeah. There's you know, and that's to me those those sequences are, are just the best, right? There's the one where uh, a student has lost a hat, and it's like, yeah, go take it to uh, go take it to the lost and found, which is just like a ledge in the hallway that looks like Kuristami staged every single object on the ledge you know mm-hmm. like perfectly the corridor of lost things yeah the corridor <laughs> yeah. of lost things and there's yeah there's like a recurring character throughout the film right it's the kid on the crutches this sort of like outsider in the community because of his disability and Kuristami really focuses on him and and the kid like goes down the corridor and puts the hat you know on the on the ledge and uh Later, in another same, like similar same shot, it's like kids walking through the hallway, and one kid just grabs his hat, uh, like, and we so we see like lost and found like within the structure of this day. I mean, it's just so. Uh, it's just so well-structured, uh, like, within everything.
0: hmm there are, there are sequences that are unbearably beautiful <laughs> with the, the boy on the crutches because um, he does, you know, he finds so much poetry in his role in the school as an outsider that is accepted because he does struggle to... To interact with everyone um, in a way that they are as a community, right? Like during the morning exercises, you know, he can't do the movements that everyone else is doing. He does occasionally make attempts. uh, Like there's certain hand gestures he'll do where he, you know, is like to the best of his ability doing that. And then there's another just like just incredibly moving sequence where he's picked up um, from the school by presumably his father. And he hops up on the back of the bicycle with him and then they ride through the city and, you know, arrive to the bus. It's just there's all these like little tender day to day moments that he really, you know, he latches onto, And then that's where he brings in the poetry into the reality. And that's something that is so that's a constant throughout his entire filmography is you know invading the real with the fiction and then the fiction with reality. And you know I I, I don't know about
1: you too but I I also found like um well something that I really appreciate also in this film is is a lot of like the the humor like the the very at mm-hmm. times touching humor and the 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 moments of of humor where you're just like an adult looking back at yeah being in first grade and kind
0: of being like oh my god yeah things were Pretty ridiculous. I I did that, you know, like yeah. This is peak um, kids say the darndest things cinema. Yeah, yeah. But
1: I also think just speaking more like generally about Kiristami, you know, something that I, I think can often get lost is like just how playful a director he really is. And I, I think sometimes that happens to to art film directors of this magnitude where people look at their films and then just like they, they watch them with such, you know, stone faces and are like, everything is this sort of like very serious kind of like, Oh yes. You know, it's, it's, but like Kiristami's always struck me as a guy that's like also like really appreciates a good prank and oh, yeah. is very, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's a cinematic prank or just like humans, like humans being humans and pranking one another, like you you compared it to close-up and I think it's like, it's such a great, it's such a great comparison. It's such a great, um you know connection in terms of his... also
2: goes, it's like trials too. Yeah. You know? yeah, <laughs> like, it's, yeah. It's <laughs> trials,
1: it's interrogations. And like the director in this very much reminded me of like quote, the judge from from close up. Yep. Uh, also because, you know, he's playing his role of I'm the disciplinarian, I'm the guy that's got to to try this case, but is always constantly very amused by everything that's going on. You know, like as serious and as heavy that, you know, the, the defendants or the accused are, are taking things or, or the victims of the crime, like he's very sort of also like. You know, yeah, that's this is life and it happens and you know, humans are amazing things. And and I think like in some of those moments where it really comes out, like that playfulness that I really appreciated, like um the 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 student who's been accused of of throwing the pistachio shell at his buddy, you know, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And the student's like and it was hot, you know? Cuz he, cuz he rubbed it on the ground and he's getting really worked up, you know? And he's like, "Look, I got a little burn on my neck from this hot pistachio show. And 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 <laughs> the director's using this moment also to like to to bring up their their science lessons, you yeah. know? And he's like, "And why was it hot?" And he's like, "We <laughs> rubbed it on the ground." He's like, "Yes, and what's the process that made the show?" <laughs> you know, so he's like, "Yeah, I know, it's very dramatic. Look at it, he's got the little burn. Don't you see? But like what's the actual it's because of static uh, energy transfer, you know?" It's yeah. Like, That's so playful, you know? And again, that's like to me, like Kiristami's kind of like smirking character that that's in and and over so many of his films that I think some people just totally miss, you know, Mm -hmm. because they want to be like, oh, it's so serious, Kiristami, you know.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I love the connection you made with the judge and close-up because that was something that I was waiting for throughout First graders that is never delivered, which was I was waiting for Kirastami to get so worked up and having such fun to interrupt and say something I was like because he does there's that great sequence in close up when it's as if he's directing real life he's using those sequences with the judge as the documentary sequences right they're shot on 16 millimeter, while the rest of the film is on 35 and it's just supposed to be raw recording of the trial but he can't help himself Mm -hmm. he speaks up he starts talking over the proceedings and is literally directing reality Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe because this was his first documentary he didn't feel that he was ready yet to interrupt the children. And I guess interrupting children is a little bit different than, um, (laughs) you know, a a bizarre court case involving cinema. Um, But also, I mean, man, since you bring it up, like, give it up to these
1: kids for, like, not being very distracted by you know, him and a camera and like this whole process that's, process that's taking place here. Like they are very on point, you know, they are very attentive to like whatever mm-hmm. is happening in that room at the time. You know, they're not just constantly like sort of gaping like, at him or at the camera, you know? It's,
2: like, more noticeable in the courtyard scenes where inevitably, you know, eyes are going to be, like, darting to him. But, yeah, in the in the director's office, there's not a lot of that at all. No,
0: I will point out that... So, I wasn't able to find production information about this film. However, on... A majority of the like brief synopses I've read of it, it calls attention to the fact that it was a hidden camera. So there is a chance that the students didn't know there was a camera in the room, which is a little tough because I'm sure the 16 millimeter was loud, and he also is. You like, can hear it on the soundtrack.
2: I thought you were gonna say it was like an ethical problem.
1: <laughs> <laughs> fuck all that. No. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> my
2: And that's the fun with Karastami. He's like doing all this sleight of hand, you know. Because honestly, you know, at first I'm like, shit, we're just going like to watch these kids be interviewed the whole time, and then immediately I was like, oh, this is great, you know. <laughs> like, of course, you know, I didn't, I didn't doubt it for a second. But yeah, it's just clever and it's fun, and it's broken up by all these poetic sequences, like uh picking up garbage just turns into like.
0: It turns into American Beauty, yeah. It's, well, it's, it's creating so, you know, you garbage
2: just, uh... first, right? Where all the <laughs> kids are just, like, throwing these bags up in the air. And then Kiristami goes, Iranian beauty, as he just <laughs> follows, you know, all these bags flying around <laughs> in its own sort of, like, montage as music plays. And then there's, like, an, an epic overhead shot of, like, all the kids picking up the garbage because, like, the janitor told the director that, like, the place was filthy, yeah. so they had to you have... you gotta him. reproach the kids. <laughs> they gotta reproach him, and they had the big community meeting, and he's like, yeah, he's clean up the garbage, and Kurosami turns it into poetry again. It's, uh... It's great.
0: Iranian beauty. That's (laughs) so funny. Most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Yeah.
2: I did want to point out, too, another thing, you know, talk about reality invading sort of this film that really struck me is not just that the director is like acting as a school disciplinarian, but also as like a, a de facto social worker. Yeah. Because there are a couple interactions he has with some of the kids that really are about problems at home, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, it's sort of him having to suss out like, okay, like, yeah, is there a serious problem here? Do I need to speak to the parents? Do I need to, like, investigate this further? And it does seem, yeah, like, he's certainly going, you know, above and beyond compared to 3 O'Clock High or maybe even probably a lot of American high schools in terms of, like, the interest beyond the walls of the institution, right? Like, where does that stop? Where does it start? And in this, it seems like, yeah, he's on alert for anything that could be you know throwing things out of order for these kids right Mm -hmm.
0: yeah absolutely i think i'm trying to remember specifically what it was but i think it was the boy who had arrived late to school and he starts asking just why that happened and that's when he starts to get a sense of that boys, his parents have like a crazy work schedule and that their availability is extremely limited. And he starts to realize like, oh, one of the reasons that he's probably struggling to get here on time is because his family has odd working hours that, you know, they're overworked. They're they're not as available for him. And then so
2: his,
1: yeah, he's not he's not eating well, I think, was also oh, discovered
2: right. in that moment, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of accusations about dirty faces as well, Or he's just like, you wash today? You gotta wash, you know? A lot of, like, hygiene tips are like, Christ, you're bleeding. He doesn't say Christ. He says, you know, like, you're bleeding or whatever, <laughs> yeah, you know? Like, yeah. calling out, like, all this, these kids. You know, they are, yeah. They're like, some of them are covered in dirt. And, like, what happened to you, you know? Whether at home or in the yard, mm-hmm. you know?
1: Again, it you know, what for me, when I was watching it, and, and thinking of the topic, you know, like back to school and, and the experience of that, you know, again, it was like for me seeing this guy and, and seeing the way he was interacting with these kids. And, and again, of course, realizing that, you know, this idea of school here isn't necessarily about, you know, math or whatever it is that they're they're learning in their classrooms. But, you know, how they're just learning to to sort of like be functioning human beings and thinking about the great teachers that I've had you know the teachers that you know when in my mind I look back in my experiences through school and and there are like teachers who blew my mind because of their the, the subject matter or just the way they delivered stuff but but I often like go back in my memories just to the times when a, a teacher broke through the veil of you know institutional professionalism or whatever and and like Saw me as a as a as an individual as a human being and and took the time to show concern for me you know not just as like a, a a pupil that did poorly on a test but as like hey what's really going on here and and I think that's why this film was like just really and and this guy particularly this director was just like resonating so intensely with me because of all that stuff we're talking about that it's like. This is a movie about school, but it's not about school. It's about humans connecting and interacting and and learning to respect one another and love one another and, and just
2: like three o'clock high, yeah, just like <laughs> three o'clock high, man, yeah, just
1: like three o'clock high.
2: I mean, it is funny that the, the, the yeah one of the strongest connections between them is the, yeah the actual lack of uh, classroom pedagogy, but it's like you know. Hard knocks, like mm-hmm. but both of them, right? Because they're situated around, yeah, like bad incidents, right? Yeah. Uh, so all the learning in both films is really done outside of the classroom.
1: Yeah, where well, I think we, I think all of us, like we've talked about that. I think, like, yeah, I think that school for me has always sort of like represented this sort of place to, you know, as a sort of like network for for the real like education I get which is like around school you know it's it's meeting people like minded you know fr- friends that I'm now going to have for the rest of my life you know because we we can relate about An
2: something. podcasts that you're going to have for the rest of your life. <laughs> 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 yeah however long that means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh.
1: I guess, you know, one thing that I was really intrigued by that, like, I wish I'd had more explanation of is like, I think that, like, I think it's like the first two students who are brought in for discipline, uh, they get pulled out because he's like, You were playing the spitting game, weren't you? I was wondering what the spitting game was, yeah. And they're like, Oh, yeah. He started the, spid- the spitting game, and they all kept calling it the spitting game. And I was like, "What the hell's the spitting game?" Because at a certain point, it just started to sound like they were just spitting on each other. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, "That's
2: probably. not much of a game, is it?" The- to the- a first <laughs> grader, you know. Like-
0: the only thing I could think was either how f- they were trying to see how far they could spit, or they were trying to spit on a specific yeah. object in the court.
2: That's what I thought did. too. That's I mean-
0: more of a game than just spitting on each other. <laughs> yeah, it was. It's like bocce ball, but was spinning right well it was so it was funny right when uh, i picked first graders and then Marsh, you came in with three o'clock high i was like oh my god like have i finally gone too far i'm picking like this weird like early kiristami with like burned in french subs like am i being too esoteric to the point where i'm like this double feature will finally be a disaster and at odds and um let me tell you, the Gauntlet proves once again you plop two films <laughs> together from the weird recesses of our brains, and there's there's so much Imagine beauty happens. and humor to be found. Yeah, the magic of the Gauntlet happens. Um, so I had a ton of fun, and Andy, um, I hope we fulfilled um, your back to school desires. But I I'd like to know, you know, what are some back to school films that you love?
1: Yeah, well, you know, Marsh mentioned one earlier that I I, I really adore. Um, and that's Class of 1984. I mean, I, I I love that movie so much. I just rewatched it recently, as a matter of fact. And I think solely for me, like it, it's a it's a good movie. I, I like the movie, but but really for me like the whole movie will live forever in my mind because I'm a you know an educator, uh, simply because of the scene where Roddy McDowell just pulls a gun on the class and and starts teaching them at gunpoint and demanding <laughs> answers, or he's gonna like blow a student's brains out. You know, I, I love that scene so much. I'm not trying to. No one should consider me like at risk or whatever at this point. Like I, I would never do that. But but I love that movie. It's so much fun. But I, I think for me, my my all time favorite movie about. You know, school and and education and what we experienced there, and and again, as a sort of like, you know, microcosm of the world, is Lindsay Anderson's If, and I've shown that movie myself in college. Um I think that is just a a, a beautiful film that would have I think fit very well in a triple yeah. feature along these lines because I think it shares qualities of both films. But but Lindsay Anderson's If is a, is a, is an incredibly You know, like three o'clock high at times, very surreal fantasia of the educational experience. But instead of an American high school, it's a it's a British boarding school. And if you haven't seen Lindsay Anderson's If, make a nice triple feature out of (laughs) out of these three first graders, three o'clock high and Lindsay Anderson's If an amazing film.
2: And I would of course be remiss not to mention that uh, Anne Ryan, who plays Fran in this film, is also in another high school film, Lucas, which was <laughs> shot in uh, Glen Ellen at my high school. So then, you know, I had to had to Lucas them. Alert. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I picked this and I had a blast, and
1: uh, I believe it's now. Ryan's turn to pick. So,
0: Ryan, what do we got coming up next week? What do you got for us? Really quickly, before I introduce the next topic, you know, you you mentioned for Class of nineteen eighty four, your that great scene with Roddy McDowell, and I just want to send a. Happy birthday to Roddy McDowell from Beyond the Grave. Uh, Today is Roddy McDowell's birthday, uh, the day we're recording. Um, Oh, HBD. Yeah. Love Roddy so much. But in another reference to the time of this recording, it is a very exciting weekend for the three boys here of the Gauntlet because uh, there's a special film (laughs) that has just been (laughs) released, and that is... Uh, the new Clint Eastwood film. And in the spirit of that, as we're all, we're all gearing up to go see it this weekend, the next week's topic is going to be named after this new Clint Eastwood film. And so I challenge you both with Cry Macho. Uh, you can interpret that as you will, but I would say bring me an emotional or tender, heartfelt portrait of um, machismo.
2: A male weepy. A male, a male weep. weepy. Bring
0: me a male weepy. <laughs> so cry macho in honor of the, the big weekend.
1: Bless
2: you. <laughs> As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail dot com.
0: Thanks everyone.
2: Yeehaw <laughs> این که از دوستانش اشتباه حالش شده بود درش خردود به این سرکوه
1: و سرش باز کردید اون اطفالوننگ بر حالی که خیلی انگریه میکرد و درست و ناراحت بود من بهش گفتم که شما باز باز خردش بده که سرونم بخار و باز نه من میبخشم و اون دوستش رو چکار کرد بخشم به خیلی منظم و نواقه گذشتی شما آمونه برایش آفرین میگم